The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode, episode 78. And my guest is a woman whose scores can move markets when it comes to champagne, Essie Avalan, MW. She has just reported on the state of champagne for Club Enologique, tasting hundreds of cuvées in the process. We'll ask her what she found. Plus, later on, some medal-winning inspiration from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It is no exaggeration to say that Master of Wine, Essie Avalan, is a world authority on sparkling wine. She is completely immersed in it and her scores for uh, the most sought-after cuvées can have a significant impact on their prices. The head of the judging process for the IWSC's sparkling wine category, Essie, has conducted an exhaustive report for Club Enologique's collection, uh, the first part of which has just been published, uh, where she warns that rising demand for champagne means the market, uh, for non-vintage at least, is fast becoming overheated, with some wines being rushed to release. She does also award 250 scores above 90 uh, and four scores of 98. Uh, So it's uh, not all bad news. Uh, More on that uh, in just a moment, because I'm delighted to say that Essie has taken time out from her busy schedule uh, to talk to us here on The Drinking Hour. Uh, I can't wait to hear more about uh, your report. Um, Essie, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thanks very much. It's lovely to have you back here again. A little about you to come, but first we must talk about your champagne report for Club Enologique because that's uh, the reason you're here. Just tell us what you were setting out to achieve with this report and and how you went about putting it together. Yes, this was our initial um, champagne report um, with the Club Enologique magazine. So the idea really is to taste through um, most of the offering, uh, current offering on the market markets. So we decided to start uh, with um, with uh, the Grand Marks, the Maison, uh, some of the cooperatives, uh, but it was it's such a big task that will then continue next year with uh, with a special grower uh, champagne report. Mm. So the idea is basically to see where uh, who is where uh, now, uh, what sort of vintages are coming on the market, any surprises, um, basically to find uh, the best uh, purchases on the market. And it's uh, a fascinating uh, report. I'm going to come to some of the elements that you've you've pulled out of it in your introduction fairly shortly. But how many champagnes are you tasting to put something like this together? Yeah, we tasted. I tasted around uh, 350 uh, champagnes specifically for this report. So it was done uh, during a week um, in August in London. And as I understand it, you don't taste blind for this. You're, you're aware when you're tasting of, of the label, if you like. Yeah, it was actually, we um, we decided to do it this way because, you know, um, 
I think that it gives more insights um, to the to the reader um, because you know there are a lot of uh, blind tasting competitions around um, which don't really give much insight um, about the producer, about the vintage, and so forth. So this sort of gives uh, me the possibility to do just that: talk a little bit about the producer, um, the making of that particular wine, um, that particular vintage. Um, and it was actually a great thing to be able to taste each and every producers, you know, all the cuvées side by side. It was really nice to to get to see them all in in perspective. Mm, I bet it was. Uh, I've tasted uh, alongside you a few times, and I know many people who've tasted alongside you. And you basically are sufficiently experienced. You actually will recognise a champagne generally by its signature, even if you are tasting blind, won't you? Yeah, I mean, many, many of the styles are obviously recognizable um, in their styles, but it's not something in a blind tasting that I try to do. I just actually try to to um, to assess the wine as it is showing in the glass. But this time now that I was tasting openly, it was really to capture, you know, the house style and uh, and compare it to the to the um, say previous vintages and previous um, non vintage cuvées. Well, let's address some of your conclusions in the report which uh, as I said are are fascinating Um, there are positives and also a few negatives as well Um, addressing the latter first um, you have a concern and I'm going to quote that with demand currently outstripping supply the champagne market is fast becoming overheated Uh, explain what you mean yeah, I mean now with this uh, with this huge post-COVID boom of champagnes, I mean they sort of um, were very careful with the production volumes um, in the in the past um, two three years, and actually the market completely surprised um, the champagne producers, and there's a huge a huge demand at the moment, and I could feel in the report that I had especially some non-vintages that that tasted very very young at the time, so probably they've been brought on to the market some months earlier than than usual uh, which sort of does does um, affect um, the the quality and the points a little bit it was quite uh, extraordinary what happened during covid because generally speaking we drink champagne to celebrate uh, when the global pandemic came along obviously the champagne producers thought oh my god this is going to be potentially devastating and they they cut back supply, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was uh, there was um, the qualitative 2020 harvest that would have actually allowed a bigger production, but the producers decided not to do it because the of the prospects looking so bad. And then, of course, 2021 was uh, quantity wise such a tiny harvest that uh, that it meant that the the um, the really the um, the tanks were basically empty of reserve wines and things like that. So. So it was it uh, it really was a surprise um, to the producers that this this these moments of you know extreme times didn't mean um, stopping of consum- uh, con- champagne consumption. I think it actually um, led uh, to a different consumption pattern because a lot before people ha- were drinking uh, champagne in the restaurants and different events. But now it really started, you know, uh, you know, people people's habits of drinking more champagne at home, and and also um, investing a bit more to 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 drink very very nice champagnes. I assume they cut back the production volumes that were permitted, so that they avoided having a kind of lake of champagne effectively, because that would have pushed the price down potentially. 
Uh, yes, definitely. There is there is that, but also it's a cash flow thing that if you're not, uh, they have to pay for the grapes uh, uh, immediately um, and, 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 you know, latest uh, quite soon. So, uh, and if they were not seeing much money coming in, um, they obviously a bit were forced to, to cut the volumes as well. Uh, your life is kind of immersed in champagne. Were you surprised by the appetite for champagne during the pandemic? Yeah, I think I, I a little bit was. I mean, but um, but you know, as you said, I'm in, immersed in champagne, and you know, it's it's a part of you know both good moments and bad moments. And I I think it was this old uh, saying that you know needs it in 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 victory uh, as well as in defeat. So I think it's uh, it's it has some comforting qualities. Oh, it most certainly does. Um, going back to your point about um, the uh, demand outstripping supply, the market uh, becoming overheated. Are you saying there, in very basic terms, that corners are being cut? Champagne can thank its uh, commercial um, success. I think um, you know uh, a lot for the consistency, uh, the non-vintages. You know the. Um, there has always been wine to to sell, so that you know you don't sell out one vintage and then there's a six months uh, gap uh, in getting the next one. So the non-vintage has really allowed Champagne to do that, and uh, and now I think there is such a huge demand in some cases that uh, that has come as a surprise that the, the it it might mean that some some um, houses have had to to shorten the the times of both um, on lease age, aging and also post disgorgement aging. And for those who really enjoy champagne and maybe know less about it and how it's made, just explain the potential impact of that shorter lease aging, first of all. Yeah, well, the lease aging sort of builds um, these sort of uh, champagne qualities. You, you know, it roundens the, the texture of champagne um, and also brings this aroma precursors of what we, we uh, associate with champagne, all these toasty, um, toasty, acacia, nutty type of uh, flavors. And uh, if you shorten it a lot, uh, you know, you can feel um, some of the impact. Uh, but I'd say that it's often a a wiser choice to shorten it from um, from the lease aging than from the post disgorgement aging because the the, um, the aging of champagne really changes at the moment of disgorgement um, so it starts its life in an in a um, more oxidative environment and here the the, the transition the, the transformation is much quicker actually so um, so it's best maybe to cut a little bit off the the lease aging but keep on that uh, that normal what they would like to do for non-vintage champagnes minimum three months uh, but rather six months um, aging post-disgorgement so that the wine uh, shows more expressive and ready um, when brought onto the market. But by the looks of it from what you've concluded from your uh, tasting uh, they have also some of them been reducing that post-disgorgement aging as well. Yeah, and, and you know, it's with champagne, they often still don't mention the disgorgement times on the label, which I think they always should, so that even I would be, you know, better uh, better able to analyse where, where the change uh, comes from. But luckily, it's, um, it's a trend that is changing and more and more um, both growers and houses are putting the, the disgorgement dates on the uh, label because it is really essential information for, for, for those especially working professionally in the industry. Do you think consumers could be kind of uh, persuaded to take an interest in disgorgement dates as well? 
Uh, well, I, I would only think that a very, very interested, um, you know, knowledge-thirsty consumer would. Uh, for the others, I think it's it's really, really um, uh, complicated. Yeah, so more useful for you and and the sommelier uh, and the and the person selling the champagne, perhaps than uh, exactly. than, than the consumer. I was struck um, by the point that you make in the report that the current challenges are focused on. Uh, non-vintage uh, rather than vintage and prestige cuvées. Yeah, you know, the, the non-vintage is, I mean, they drive the market. That's most of the volume. The vintage category uh, itself is, is is minimal. It's like uh, less than 2% of the, the champagne category. So um, that's why it's not so critical. Um, and those wines get a lot of um, bottle age in any case. I mean, the the, uh, the minimum aging is three years, but if you look at the vintages um, of what most of the, the Grand Mark bring on the markets, they can be seven to ten years old. So there's absolutely no problem uh, with those wines. Then when it comes to the um, prestige cuvee, that's a little bit different market. Um, they are really increasing in popularity and some of them are in, in huge demand. So it's really up to the, the seller master uh, to be the more powerful person than the, the finance director in houses like, you know, uh, be it uh, Louis Roederer with their Cristal or, or Dom Perignon or, or those um, really, really popular, uh, hyped uh, prestige cuvee. But there the, the quality is really so essential that they don't want to um, release them any, any earlier. So I don't see that much of a problem there. But then there are a lot of um, prestige cuvee that are not so popular and are not selling so well and you can see that you know some of them are already 20 years old um, or 15 years old at the at the moment of release and we have this this um this impression that you know the older the better but it's not at all true um to all champagnes all wines are not made to be aged uh, too long on the lease and the lease can also have some negative impacts on the wines and the wines would show better if they'd be released like say five years earlier i was i confess uh, a little surprised by that because i'd assumed where you're at the quality level of a, a really great vintage champagne or a, a prestige cuvee that uh, for quite a long time, they would just get better and better, but that's that's not the case then. Yeah, not for not for every wine, not for every vintage, and there are different house styles as well. I mean, if you have a wine very solidly made in a more reductive styles, they tend to take the the aging on the lease really well. But if it's a more um, oxidative style, that I often find that uh, that um, that oxidative um, impact can have a negative influence um, um, during the lease ed- aging already. As a rule, if I buy a non-vintage champagne, which, as you said, is is the overwhelming majority of the, the market, should I drink that straight away or will that also benefit from a, a bit of careful cellaring? I really hope I could give you a simple answer, but sorry, I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's really all up to the, 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 um, the quality of the producers. But okay, if I have to make some sort of, uh, you know, shorthand... Uh, um, you know, uh, help for you. I, I think that you know the more the more expensive the wine uh, in general, one would say that uh, the more it has also aging uh, capacity. So if you have something like you know the Louis Roeder collection, uh, non vintage or Bollinger special cuvee, Paul Roger uh, wines like this, I always like to give myself you know hopefully at least a year, if not two years, um, uh, on it. But you know there are some really modest non vintage champagnes that are are, are um, at their best uh, 
quite soon after release. Yeah, I, I've experimented along those lines in my own cellar. And uh, uh, I, I, yes, I appreciate you can't really make a sweeping generalisation because it just depends on that uh, quality point. But I have had some success with uh, some non-vintage champagne that has been sensational two or three years later. So uh, interesting. Yeah, one one thing that I must say that, you know, uh, one of the champagnes, you know, best if you want to really maximise the value for money, I would recommend uh, buying Magnums, non-vintages and Magnum and keeping those say two years three years even five years and and i can guarantee that you get sort of vintage quality uh wine by keeping them so magnum is always a great great idea yes in the wine trade we it's it's a kind of given that uh, magnums are a, a rather wonderful thing but just explain to those listening who are enthusiastic about champagne but again not very technical just explain why a magnum is different to a regular sized bottle yeah, I mean, the difference is even greater in champagnes than in um, in any other um, type of wine uh, because the wine goes through the second fermentation in the bottle. So it's actually uh, made in the bottle uh, with, uh, with the amount of oxygen in the bottle playing uh, a big role. So first of all, the bigger vessel is always better. The wine ages slower and then the proportion of, of the headspace, air in the headspace is smaller. And also the uh, well in the magnums and the and the normal bottles, the diameter of the cork is the same. So there is actually in the magnums um, the gas exchange uh, in relation to the to the amount of liquid inside. It's very very slow. So that makes um, makes a big difference in the aging. Uh, the magnums age slower, um, they age finer, and I, they are more reductive in character, these sort of um, very toasty firework uh, type aromas get sort of accentuated in magnums. And then I always find that the mousse, the bubbles are much finer in the, in the magnums, and that's worthwhile paying for. Yeah, it's a, a good advert for a magnum, uh, what you've just said, for sure. Um, you talked um, a little bit just now about um, that potential tension uh, between the finance director and the seller master. And of course, very often uh, there isn't a tension, actually. They, they, they kind of, uh, I'm sure, see each other's uh, points of view. But actually, I, a great friend of mine is a uh, a finance director in actually in a law firm uh, and I remember explaining the economics of of any kind of wine production uh, and he kind of he turned ashen you've got to be quite brave and very understanding to run the numbers um, in any kind of wine establishment but but most especially um, a champagne house haven't you yeah that's um that's true that uh, you know making wine at um, you know costs a lot and takes a lot of time and uh, and therefore that's why you know the normal this sort of um, you know publicly listed um, uh, companies have not traditionally done so well because you really have to understand that uh, the the scale we are doing things on and that's why many you know family companies are not definitely not thinking in quarters, uh, not even years. They're more thinking about the production in generations. And this is why cellar masters are always talking about being effectively the curator of, of something, I, I guess. 
Yeah, definitely. And if you think of, you know, champagne, uh, it often takes 10 years uh, from the moment you make it that you sell, uh, say, your prestige cuvee. So sometimes it's it's uh, so that the cellar master um, spends first half of their career uh, talking about wines that their predecessors did and then, then only half of them about their own wines and then uh, they leave a, le- a big legacy in the form of reserve wines and then wines aging on the lease um, in the cellar for their predecessors. Mm, it's an incredible process. Um, going back to the uh, report, um, on a positive note, the overall quality level that you report is very high, uh, 250 of the 350 wines tasted, passing the 90 point uh, mark and having uh, judged alongside you, you you don't um, you don't give out points willy nilly. So this is uh, they, they're going to have to have been doing very well uh, to get those kind of scores. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ninety points, as as you said, you know, my my points are not really overly inflated, um, and ninety is something that I'm really happily. If if a wine is worth ninety points, I really happily can uh, you know recommend it. So I thought it was really really d- well done overall in the competition, and I think that you know we can we can taste there the effects of obviously the 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 global um, or climate change, a bit warmer um, vintages in Champagne, and also wines the non vintage is from uh, from the um, the fine base year um 2018 you know hitting the markets and you give uh, an absolutely whopping 98 points uh to the top uh four uh, i'll list them in a second but what made um these these examples that you gave 98 points to which is not that far from perfection what made yeah. you love those yeah, so and much it- yeah, and you know, some of them even have uh, the capacity to go to that full 100 points um, over aging. We have to remember that these are the current releases that, and when it's a prestige cuvee, you know, sometimes they're built um, to last and improve for the next 20, 30, uh, sometimes even 40 years. So quite incredible wines. But I think now with also the warmed climate, some of the wines come around earlier, so they do show uh, a lot lot of their charm already when brought onto the market. And um, as I wrote in the report, uh, we are really fortunate right now to have so many great vintages on the market. So the 2008, which is a beautiful, you know, a uh, classic cool year. Those wines have been aging so slowly, but now we have the last of them, you know, entering the market, say Krug uh, 2008, Rare Champagne 2008. Uh, these are some of the best examples from the year. And now that they've been kept in the um, in the cellar on the list for such a long time, they are really shining already right now. Yeah. And then we have the great vintage 2012, which is is one that you know is is showing some you know come hither qualities already right now. Really fruit packed, uh, charming, expressive, right away, but coming with great potential uh, equally. And then we have the the crystalline quality, the pure uh, radiant 2013. So I think there's a great great pool of of fabulous um, you know vintages for prestige cuvées to choose from right now. And those uh, prestige champagnes that got uh, 98 points were Dom Perignon, uh, Plenitude 2, Brut 2003, Laurent Perrier, Grand Siècle, uh, Les Reserves, uh, Number 20, Brut Non-Vintage, Louis Roderer, Cristal, Rosé, Brut 2013, and Rare Champagne, Brut 2008, that great um, 08 vintage that you were uh, mentioning. And if people want further 
detail on those um, and your tasting notes, they'll have to go to uh, uh, Club Inologique, uh, to uh, the collector's uh, page uh, for that, uh, which they can do. More details about that later on. You uh, also highlight the fact that your uh, work on the report also showed how many houses are spreading their focus from the classic broad-based blends to a greater focus on unique sites, be they single villages or single vineyard sites. Um, this is a, a clear trend you're seeing, is it? Yeah, I think greatly helped by the work of, of the grower producers. The the attention really has moved from the winery to the vineyards in Champagne. And uh, in, in many ways, um, the, the great houses are, are, are doing amazing job in the vineyards too. And want to, you know, show that work that they are doing and uh, and the potential of their individual sites or villages to make a point that also they have those wonderful sites and uh, and um, capacity to make uh, wines uh, apart from this sort of larger scale blending what we are used to um, seeing from the big houses. Mm. Do you think this is a response from the bigger houses uh, to the growth of grower champagne as a category? Yeah, I think it little bit is. And, you know, but I must say at the same time that the houses have been very big part of, of um, emergence of these uh, single site champagnes as well from, you know, uh, Claude Guas, Philipponas, Claude Guas in the 1930s, uh, Krug's uh, Claude Menil in the 70s. So it's not like they're newcomers um, to the world of, of uh, single vineyard wine. Uh, but definitely it's it's increasing and I think it's also a response to the uh, consumer interest um, because champagne is now being seen increasingly as a wine. Uh, there's a lot of people really wanting to learn as much as possible about champagne, be it the vintages, but especially the, the, the different terroirs and showing these sort of um, single terroir wines is, is a really uh, helpful tool in doing just that. Mm, I know Grower Champagne will form the next instalment of, of your report uh, in a few months' time. Does the distinction between the bigger houses, those Grand Marc names, the very large cooperatives that operate, and then the smaller growers, uh, does it really matter as much as people seem to suggest sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it It of course matters. Um, and uh, I think overall, um, the good thing is that we have this amazing um, uh, versatility in Champagne. And with the emergence of more and more better and better, better grower producers, I think it's it's enriching it all the time, which is really fabulous. It's, it's you know, wonderful to see, of course, that, you know, the pioneering um, uh, growers and now, you know, um, the, the next generation coming. It's really wonderful um, for Champagne um, as a whole. I myself, I don't really want to to um, um, highlight so much this difference um, uh, or contrast between, with, between the houses and the growers. Personally, I'm really, you know, pro-grade uh, champagne. I don't really, really uh, focus on if it's made by a grower, if it's made by a, by a house. And with that in mind, you being pro-just great champagne, uh, you also highlight uh, rosé champagne, uh, the growth of it, the success of it. And you reflect on the fact that there is still, uh, these are my words rather than yours, um, there's still a bit of snobbery about it. Yes, of course. I mean, yeah, originally... 
I think it's also the Champenois have themselves little to blame for it, that they didn't even take their rosé wine seriously. It was just considered this sort of uh, easygoing, uh, romantic wedding wedding wine type of thing. Uh, you know, making it often meant just adding red wine to a white base. So the roses were not often constructed as separate wines from the beginning. And of course, you can't expect a similar, um, similar uh, result uh, by doing just that. Uh, but nowadays, I think, especially with the with the um, climate change, um, the possibility to make really nice, um, you know, red wine components for champagne that has um, changed the whole whole um, game. And also at the same time, you know, there have been uh, several, um, you know, pioneering uh, serious rosé producers, say Laurent Perrier, Bilka Salmon, and a few others who have shown that that you know this. Um, this color can, uh, you know, make um, make equally good, if, if not better, champagnes. You know, if you think of, you know, what to me are often the finest wines of champagne, they would be the prestige cuvee roses, say Cristal Rosé or Dom Perignon Rosé or Alexandra Rosé or or um, Elizabeth Salmon Rosé. Those are, have all the good stuff that the, the white champagnes uh, have, but they have that added complexity uh, coming from that uh, that um, Pinot Noir element, a little Burgundian touch, if you want. Yes, one of your ninety eight pointers is a, a rosé, isn't it? Yes, definitely. The the Cristal rosé was there. Uh, sounds delicious. I yet to encounter uh, that one. Uh, <laughs> sadly, um, just on rosé, while we have you, there are two sort of different approaches to making rosé champagne. For those again listening who who are enthusiastic but don't. Uh, have the, the technical knowledge, um, just explain um, the different approaches because it's interesting. So obviously the, the you know original pink wines of Champagne were done by this sort of maceration method. They just naturally got the, that, uh, that color from the skins, from the red skins of, of the grapes as you know, two thirds of Champagne grapes are uh, dark in, in their skin. Uh, but then it was already early, early on, to actually 200 years ago, um, that, um, for example, Veuve Clicquot already started to make um, rosé champagne by adding red wine to the white um, blend. And this is by far today um, the most popular method uh, because it's much, uh, I'd say, easier to make because you actually make the final blend in the in the winery at the blending time rather than in, in the vineyards at the moment of picking the challenge with the with the maceration method is that um that every uh, vintage behaves uh, in a very, very uh, different manner. You know, some the riper years uh, extract the, the color and flavor very, very quickly and differently. And uh, if consistency is the aim, um, then that can sometimes be challenging. At the same time, I'm, I must say that, for example, Laurent Perrier perfectly mastered that, uh, you know, non-vintage to non-vintage uh, cuvee with their beautiful, um, beautiful um, uh, cuvee rosé, which is made with the maceration method. Method. The the, the the maceration or senye as as it often um, is labeled, um, it is a very popular now, especially with a lot of uh, growers. I think they love that idea that you know the um, it's not a blended wine. The blend is made um, already in the vineyards, and it sort of has has that truth um, um, of the terroir. Then, so it's uh, not the case that one method is better than the other. 
No, I think, you know, if we think of the, some of the very finest uh, roses of Champagne, Laurent Perrier's um, Elizabeth Salmon or, say, Crystal Rose, they are coming off the, with the different opposite methods, but both, you know, are undeniably great. So definitely both both can be uh, used to make really fabulous rosé. You also touch on the use of oak in the uh, vinification process, uh, something that uh, sometimes isn't um, applauded um, by those who, who love champagne. Um, you clearly um, rate the results, though. Yes, I mean, it is uh, a little bit challenging in champagne um, because champagne is quite a delicate wine. And if you use a lot of oak, it can easily sort of, um, you know, mask some of the fruit and and i'm not personally a big friend of that i like the use of oak so that you can't really sense that there is wood there but it just has its its uh, textural and opening effect um on the wine so it takes a lot of uh, you know experience to learn how to use um use the barrels or bats um in a in a correct um manner but but you know of course we have to think that um that in the old days you know all champagnes were made in in oak so of course you can make beautiful um, beautiful wines with 100% oak, but it is a, definitely something that needs um, to be mastered. So it's like still wine, really. It's it's got to be properly integrated. Yes, integration, and even more. You know, uh, you don't even want uh, it to be in such a big role as you want it to be in a perfectly integrated, say, say uh, Mersor or whatever you wish. So it's it's it is challenging, but there are some some producers who make it perfectly, even with you know oaky, uh, obvious oaky oaky notes, say say Krug or or from the grower world, someone like uh, Ulis Colan. They are notably oaky, but they are gorgeously so. What about dose? levels because we have seen uh, the level of uh, uh, residual sugar um, in the finished product uh, reducing uh, quite considerably in recent years haven't we yes I mean at the moment um, the um, with the current climate um, the wines really don't need so much of the sugar uh, it's really a question of balance um, and also I think um, the champagne consumer um, is now used to drinking more dry and wants to drink uh, drier styles personally I'm not so interested in in you know the actual um, number of sugar Sugar in the wine, or what is the category? Uh, to me, it's fine as long as the the balance works. And one also has to think that sugar potentially has some positive qualities um, in champagne. You know, it can bring additional uh, aromas uh, to it, and also help the wine to to combat oxidation. So, therefore, I definitely don't agree with the you know the drier the better. Yes, I mean a lot of people are very excited about Brut Nature, uh, so, so no dosage or very, very, very little. But uh, uh, it, that's something that you don't obsess about too much by the sounds of it. No, not at all, actually. I mean, um, there are wonderful Brut Nature champagnes, uh, but they have to be made into a Brut Nature. It doesn't work if you just, you know, uh, leave the sugar out of your normal um, uh, Brut non-vintage. But there are great examples, you know, if you look at the, the houses. I mean, the growers, of course, are the leaders in, in making, um, making Brut Natures. 
on a, on a bigger scale, but say Louis Roederer, when they make their Breton Nature, it has to be a warm uh, year that brings, you know, rich wines to start with, which don't need that um, um, sugar at all. And also, you know, you might um, need a longer aging or you need, uh, might, um, you know, um, have to use more reserve wines, but definitely, you know, these types of wines uh, can be made. Uh, in tasting as many champagnes as you do, and it was 350 for this report, but I mean, uh, I, I shudder to think uh, how much uh, champagne uh, passes your nose and your, your lips in a in a given year. Uh, are you noticing the impact of climate change? Yes, definitely. It's, it is notable even in the non-vintages, clearly. Uh, but more, it's it's easier to see in the vintages. If if you just think of, you know, the, the years what we've had uh, in this millennium, Millennium already the 02, 05, 06, 09, 12. We have we have very very you know rich solar years. Champagnes where we can taste some of the you know sunshine in the glass rather than this this style that we had still in the 70s and 80s where where the grapes really uh, struggled to ripen. Really much uh, much leaner, um, greener style if you wish. So there are some positives obviously not to climate change because we all know that that, that climate change is is doing a a lot of damage around the world but there are some positives uh, for the champenoise in terms of of, of, of ripeness of those grapes, at least. Yeah, I'd say that the effect has been very positive so far. Now we start to have the extreme hot years that are the problem and not the extreme cold years that were the problems in the past. And then one just needs to adapt um, adapt to making that. Um, I hope that, you know, people will be able to have this. Um, still, that champagne will be able to have um, that sort of tension, even if... Um, the acidity wouldn't be as high as uh, as before, but that the wines still have that uh, that sort of tension that brings that energy and liveliness to it, uh, which I really like in Champagne. It's no exaggeration uh, to say that you can move the price of a, a cuvee uh, by the score you give it, um, Essie. So uh, there must be a weight of responsibility you feel uh, when you go about the process of assessing a champagne. Yes, uh, of course, yes. Um, um, but, you know, I, I have to be, you know, true to my own palate and my own mind. I don't really think so much about, you know, the, the commercial issues. You just have to have to give the score based on what uh, what you taste and what you, you think. And you now head the judging process for sparkling wines um, at the IWSC, uh, sponsors of this uh, programme. What do you look for when you're um, assessing a sparkling wine? I mean, it's the same as for champagne. I mean, uh, this sort of energy, vivacity, I'd say really finesse, um, clean fruitiness, um, sense of place um, as well. It's a little bit tougher uh, often for for um, um, sparkling wines because to the most traditional methods, sparkling wines are made with the same grape varieties um, around the world. And also the lees um, behave um, in, in the same way in different um, different regions. But uh, but they're definitely in the in the structure of the wines. You can you can sense um, sense the place for for sparkling wines as well. But basically, a similar uh, finesse, uh, complexity, energy, uh, aging capacity.
And uh, you brief us, uh, the judges, to be keenly on the lookout for faults. Uh, not not because you want us to find them, but because we need to find them uh, if, if they are in these sparkling wines. And I know that clear bottles um, is something that you're uh, particularly sort of concerned about generally. And of course, they do use clear bottles in champagne as well, but they're more widely used in some other uh, countries and, um, and other regions. Uh, can you just explain the problem of light strike, um, what it is and why clear bottles are a problem potentially? Yeah, I think that um, I'm quite worried of the trend now that more and more of new sparkling wine releases, both champagne and um, and other sparkling wines, are bottled in uh, clear glass bottles. It's, you know, clear glass is never good for any wine, but it's especially harmful for these traditional methods, sparkling wines, where that, you know, um, lease aging uh, does uh, does play a role. So then the different rays of light uh, can can react with the with the sulfur related compounds in in the wine very quickly. This will happen within, uh, you know, within minutes, uh, if not hours. And it's both sunlight, uh, but also the 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 lights, uh, normal uh, regular lights. Um, uh, at home, so um, you have to be very, very uh, careful. I find that the light strike—you know—the wine industry is well um, educated when it comes to um, uh, cork taint or or bretonomyces or uh, volatility or or issues like that. But very, very few people recognize light strike. Um, it is a very easy uh, fault to recognize once you know. Uh, what it is and uh, and you will not uh, make the mistake again so it comes across it can come across in different flavors but basically the wine is very stinky so it can stink of of cabbage or cardboard or or um, in worst case uh, cheesy or even sewer sewer like so very negative uh, aromas which you very easily pick in in a very delicate wine like um like uh, sparkling wine therefore i'm i'm i think that those wines should not be you know it should not be allowed to make uh, sparkling wine in bottles like this because even if the producer manages to ship them in good condition um there is a huge risk at the shop um at the restaurant or or at home that um these bottles will be um seeing some light at some point and uh the consumer won't understand what's the problem. They just think it's a bad wine. Yes, that's interesting because um, before I was judging under your direction last year, I, I felt that I kind of, I knew about the cheesiness and the cabbage, uh, but actually you brought round uh, to, to the judges from other tables various examples of sparkling wines where there had been a different shade of light strike, if you like. And some of them are more subtle than stinking cabbage or stinky blue cheese, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a big range of um, aromas and some are very, very delicate and then maybe it doesn't uh, bother someone. But I mean, there's to me, there's no sense in letting this sort of, uh, you know, you you spend years sometimes if it's a prestige cuvee, you make the wine for 10 years and then you let five minutes in the sun uh, ruin the wine. So I don't really see see the, the points um, there at all. And hopefully now a lot of um, high quality champagne producers are um, stopping the use of these dark bottles but uh, sometimes they've made 10 vintages already so it takes a long time <laughs> for the yeah. change to be visible to the consumer it's a worry i mean why do producers use these clear glass bottles because clear glass isn't sustainable either it has to be made from virgin glass as well so there's a another reason not to use them so why do they do that 
Yeah, I think the explanation is very, um, very easy. I mean, apparently they look attractive. You know, the wine looks attractive in them before the color, before the light has actually uh, affected its quality. Um, and also they sell so well. That's the problem uh, with them that uh, that really the winemaking department loses the battle very often with the with the marketing department because it's uh, they just um, seem to sell because there is no communication to the consumer about um, the, the the difficulties with um, with this um, these bottles. Um, you know, you can use cellophane, you can try to use packages, but it doesn't, uh, you know, still uh, serving it at home or on your terrace, you know, you can ruin the wine in, in, in minutes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a real uh, worry. Uh, going back uh, to, you talked vintages and you uh, named uh, some of those around at the moment that are excellent. You talked about um, 08, uh, 12 and 13. I think we're starting to see uh, 15 into the market now as well? Yeah, I mean, 15 is, is an interesting vintage because um, it showed a lot of promise in the beginning. I'm, I originally made a very good assessment for it. It was a warm uh, year with, you know, plush, lovely fruit. But then later on, uh, these aromas of more vegetal, uh, vegetal um pyrazine uh, unripe pyrazine type um, uh, type of aromas came uh, came through and uh, for some of the wines it has only been you know noticeable much much uh, later so we haven't seen you know that many um, you know grand mark um, uh, prestige cuvées yet on the market but most made them let's see if they bring them on the markets because many of them have this uh, this um, aroma that i uh, consider rather rustic uh, so therefore i'm not not uh, i'm cautious there are some you know 15s that are free of this totally free of this aroma but it is quite common so of the market uh, available vintages uh, that are current uh, and you can still get your hands on a a 2008 you can certainly get your hands on a 12 and 13 and then 15 I I don't think you're going to be recommending that one uh, quite yet so what would you go for if you had the choice and it was simply about vintage not not name simply about vintage i would probably go for the 2012 it's one of my my you know best ever um favorite vintages um and it's it's nice that the the wines are so approachable so wow already now without you know compromising the future potential so i think whether you want to drink your wine now or you want to age it uh, it works um both ways well it's fascinating uh, talking to you it's always uh, fascinating tasting uh, alongside you as well a real uh, thrill so um, I, I won't go into any of the other questions about you and how you got into it because our listeners can go back to the first series of the drinking hour and we covered um, that ground uh, already so I shall I, I highly recommend uh, that uh, those listening pop onto Club Enologique and uh, look at uh, the collection and you can uh, register for that. You can actually register free and you can uh, see your conclusions and, and look at, uh, at some of the detail. It's a fantastic report. I look forward to the, the next instalment. When do you think you'll be returning to the subject? Yeah, early. We'll do the tasting for uh, for next year, early early on the year. And then, then hopefully, um, you know, by, by early spring, we'll be able to publish it. Mm. And do you ever get tired of tasting champagne? Not so far. I'm really worried the day I get bored of it means I'm I'm losing my passion. So luckily not yet. Yeah, I think if you're tired of champagne, you're tired of life probably. So uh, (laughs) yeah, Um, it's great to talk to you, Essie. Thanks uh, ever so much for your time uh, talking to us here on The Drinking Hour. Thanks so much, David. 
Well, as I mentioned, uh, you can find out more at uh, clubenologique.com. Uh, just go to uh, the front page. Uh, there's uh, a piece which has a, a summary of the report. Uh, and then there's a, a link to sign up for the collection. Uh, you can do that for free, uh, although there's also a premium section. Uh, and uh, that will give you a lot more detail on those uh, individual uh, champagnes uh, that Essie uh, was uh, assessing, including the scores and the tasting notes. And it's a, a fantastic uh, read, I can assure you. Uh, next, though, it's our medal winners. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So time to visit the IWSC's Hall of Fame, sparkling our theme uh, this week for obvious reasons. And as I mentioned, uh, Essie was uh, overseeing the uh, sparkling wine judging process for 2022. Let's start with a champagne, uh, always the nicest way to start. The team at Piper Heidsek were celebrating last week at the IWSC Awards, co-hosted by my good self, because they were winners of this year's Sparkling Wine Producer Trophy, uh, sponsored by uh, Denomination Design. Uh, the Piper Heidsek Brut to 2014 in Magnum uh, was a gold medal winner and also a trophy winner. That's uh, effectively best in show. Uh, here's the tasting note. Pale colour hints at maturity with a bouquet of flint, smoke and jasmine confirming this. Complex toasted hazelnut notes throughout. Weight gives finesse and elegance to the attractive fruit layers. Complex finish of confected toasted biscuit and a dryness to the lingering flavour sensation. That's the tasting note and that a trophy winner. Essie mentioned the rare champagne, Brut 2008, uh, an amazing vintage. Um, it was, unsurprisingly then, a gold medal winner when tasted blind by the panel. Uh, here's what they had to say. Beautiful weight of fruit on the palate with lovely depth, full of ripe green orchard fruits and vibrant acidity, with a refreshing mousse and summer berry tart layered finish. Wonderful complexity. Uh, here's something a little bit different. One of the great names in English sparkling wine, Gusborn, Blanc de Blanc, Brut 2017. A silver medal winner. It got 92 points. Uh, Gusborn's head winemaker is Charlie Holland, a graduate of um, Plumpton College in, in Sussex. So very much homegrown talent and someone I'm keen to hopefully chat to soon here on The Drinking Hour. Uh, the judges said this of the uh, Blanc de Blanc uh, Brut 2017. Citrus, stone fruits, oaky and herbaceous on the nose, combining with herbs, green tea, chamomile and citrus characters on the palate. Fine bubbles with a nice balance of sweetness and acidity. And here's a silver medal winning sparkler from China. Domaine Chandon, Ningxia Brut, non-vintage, was awarded 90 points, a silver medal. It's from the subregion of Helan Mountain. Uh, this is a blend of 70, 30 Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Uh, the judging panel, uh, including Matthew Forster, MW, Sue Daniels, uh, an M&S veteran, and uh, Salvatore Castano, uh, a Sicilian sommelier, all overseen by Essie, uh, had to say, um, a harmonious wine with notes of green wood sap, apple and lemon zest, 
The sweetness and bitterness are well woven and expressed well by the creamy mousse. Finally, judged by uh, the same uh, estimable panel, uh, this one's from Australia, another silver medal winner from De Bortoli, DB family selection, Brut non-vintage, was a silver medal winner with 90 points. Uh, the tasting note, fabulous notes like a tropical fruit salad. Mango, pineapple and papaya. The texture is smooth and unctuous with small persistent bubbles bringing forth waves of refreshment. Some herbaceous notes of fresh rosemary. And that is it. Uh, time for uh, the waves of refreshment uh, we have brought you uh, to recede. Um, my thanks to S.E. Avalam, uh, MW, uh, for a fascinating chat and also to you, uh, for listening to us here on The Drinking Hour. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time for cocktails. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.